0: Good afternoon and welcome to the January Series 2008 at Calvin College. I'm Mike Van Denen, the Executive Director of the Calvin Alumni Association and pleased to greet you this snowy winter day on behalf of the college. Thank you for making the extra effort to be with us today. I'm particularly glad that today we're hosting a graduate of this institution and a distinguished alumnus of Calvin, Ambassador Bill Garvelink. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, our world belongs to you. Thank you for creating it and for making this world such a beautiful place full of diversity and landscape and language and culture and people. You have given us the call and the ability to be caretakers of your world and to live and work in harmony with all of your children on every continent. Forgive us when we've ignored your wishes and sought our own gratification first. Thank you for inspiring us to action through your word. In the example of the word become flesh, your own son, Jesus Christ. May we always seek your kingdom first. And thank you for bringing Bill Garveling to us this day from a far off land. He has answered your call to be an agent of renewal. Be with him as he talks about putting other people and nations and continents at the top of our agendas. Bless Bill and his important work in Africa a land that cries out for justice and peace. In your name we pray, amen. Ambassador Garvelink will be introduced to you by Dr. Galen Biker, the president of Calvin College.
1: Our speaker today is a man who's tuned in to the needs of others. He served as senior deputy in the Bureau for Democracy, Conflict, and Humanitarian Assistance for the U.S. International Development Agency. I usually think of it as AID, and uh, he did that until May of 2007. In this role, he oversaw major humanitarian operations for the U.S. government, reaching areas devastated by earthquakes, floods, tsunamis, and civil wars, and he was among the first to be notified when such events occurred. When William Garvelink graduated from Calvin in 1971, he began to work in Washington, D.C., humanitarianism was not on the forefront of most Americans' minds. He received his M.A. in history from the University of Minnesota and began working for Congressman Don Fraser, where he developed a passion for those in dire need in our world. And after three years as an aide for Frazier, he joined USAID as a Foreign Service officer and has since conducted assessments and directed relief operations worldwide including Africa, Asia, Latin America, the Near East, Europe, and the former Soviet Union. Most recently he managed an annual budget of over three and a half billion dollars for food and non-food assistance, a fact unnoticed by most American citizens, but which saved lives of millions of desperately in need and help. His greatest passion is for those in Sudan, where his role went far beyond working out the logistics of supplying food, water, and health supplies for 4 million people. In Sudan, he negotiated with rebel leaders for permission to offer relief where relief workers were often in grave danger. In May of 2007, as Mike mentioned, Bill was named a distinguished alum of Calvin College and reflected on his education for the 400, excuse me, the 900 seniors at commencement. About the same time he was nominated by President Bush to be an ambassador, and in October he was sworn in as Ambassador Extraordinary and Plenipotentiary of the United States of America to the Democratic Republic of Congo. After a 30-year career of representing the U.S. government in humanitarian assistance, he is now in his new role and continues to serve with grace and courage as an agent of renewal in God's world. He's going to speak to us today on US leadership in responding to the world's humanitarian crises. Calvin College is grateful to the Christian Reform World Relief Committee for underwriting today's presentation. Please join me in welcoming 2007 distinguished alum of Calvin, Ambassador William Garvelink.
2: It's always a pleasure to, to come back to Calvin, and I you know, enjoyed coming back in last, last May for the uh, graduation exercise. I was very pleased to be invited to come back uh, for the January series. I'm, I'm very honored to be here with you today. Um, I came in from Kinshasa on Sunday. The weather's a little bit different there. It's about 95 degrees and a little bit humid, and uh, it's, uh, there's no snow. And so it's kind of nice to come back home and see snow for a day or two, and then I will be on my way again. I don't have to shovel the stuff. I don't have to to do anything with it. So it is really very pleasant uh, to be back here. What I would like to do today is talk a little bit about the role of the United States government in providing assistance in international humanitarian crises. The United States leads the world in responding to humanitarian crises, and I suspect... Uh, most American citizens don't understand or appreciate the rather uh, tremendous job that the United States government does do in assisting the world's most needy. Uh, So I'd like to do four things today and that's to uh, first of all to explain how the United States government decides to respond to a disaster and what it does. Second, how responding to humanitarian disasters fits into the foreign policy uh, priorities of the United States Government, and then to talk a little bit about the role the United States Government plays in the international community for responding to disasters and then i 'd like to show a few a few slides of nine large disasters. The first uh, occurred in one thousand nine hundred and eighty eight and there's a couple there are a few that are going on right now and i 'll just run through some slides with with some comments about that. Um, So, I don't get crosswise with my bosses in Washington. I always have to say this, um, what I'm saying are my own opinions (laughs) and they may or may not represent the views of the U.S. Agency for International Development, the State Department and the U.S. Government. Otherwise, I get into lots of trouble with with my bosses. Uh, A couple of words about the U.S. Agency for International Development. It is an independent agency. It's made up of about a thousand foreign service officers and uh, about seven or 8,000 other people and it's, it, it's uh, a worldwide organization. It's very closely associated with the State Department but it's a separate agency and it has two principal functions. Its first is to provide a de- development assistance on behalf of the United States government to about a hundred countries around the world. The other function is to coordinate and lead the civilian humanitarian assistance efforts for the United States government. Most of my career, not all of it, but most of it has been on the humanitarian side of things in the U.S. Agency for International Development. Within the United States Agency for International Development, or USAID, or AID, whatever you want to call it, there is the office that that responds to disasters, and that's the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance, its acronym is OFDA. As we talk I'll I'll probably slip into AID, AID, USAID, OFDA. So OFDA is the disaster part of the Agency for International Development where I worked for for quite a few years. How does the US government respond to disasters? Two conditions have to be satisfied before the US can provide disaster assistance. The first is that the the event exceeds the capacity of the local government to to take care of it. And the second is a simple one. They have to ask us to, uh, or we'll offer assistance and they have to accept it. Once those two things are done, then the United States ambassador in a given country sends a cable to Washington that says, I've determined that there's a major disaster here that cannot be handled by the country alone. Please provide assistance. It's a bureaucratic exercise that's very important. What that does, uh, once it's sent to Washington and USAID, it allows the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance to set aside all of its procurement regulations that the government usually has to follow and it can do anything it wants very quickly to provide to procure supplies or hire people anywhere in the world to get it as fast as possible to the disaster site. It also has a foreign policy implication which is very important and the the Foreign Assistance Act which governs what the U.S. government does in foreign affairs, it says that when a disaster is declared by a United States Ambassador, the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance can provide disaster assistance to that country notwithstanding any other provision of law and that's how the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance can provide humanitarian assistance to Cuba, to Iran, to North Korea and some of the other countries around the world that normally would not be eligible for any other kind of assistance that the United States has to offer. <coughs> Excuse me. Once a disaster has been declared, the the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance can respond in one of about six ways. It can immediately send $100,000 out to the Ambassador who then can give it to an NGO like the Christian Reform World Relief Committee or some other NGO to begin working on the disaster response right away. Or it can give it to some other organization or it can use the resources itself to buy humanitarian goods and start the relief process. Another option that the Office of Foreign Disaster has is to send commodities immediately immediately to the disaster site. OFDA has stockpiles in Pisa, Italy, uh, Djibouti, Dubai, uh, and Miami where the warehouses are full of basic items that you need in a disaster and they can dispatch those very quickly and get them out to the disaster site. The Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance also has offices scattered around the world with disaster experts in it. There are offices in Costa Rica, South Africa, Kenya, uh, Senegal, Nepal, and Thailand. And so, if a disaster happens near one of those offices, the regional officials are dispatched right away uh, to begin working on the disaster site. The most important thing the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance can do when a disaster happens is fund NGOs and United Nations agencies. The the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance and AID is a management organization that provides funding and oversight and coordination with governments. It does not actually provide assistance itself. Rare occasions with with earthquakes it does, but in general it funds organizations to provide who will actually be on the ground with the beneficiaries and provide assistance. The next option is that uh, There are also relationships with state organizations in the United States. When there's a major earthquake, we usually travel with the Fairfax County Fire Department or the Los Angeles County Fire Department or the Miami-Dade Fire Department, and those are the organizations that provide heavy uh, urban search and rescue uh, assistance. And the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance has relationships with every federal agency in the government as well. They can pull people from the U.S. Forest Service, epidemiologists from the Centers for Disease Control, public health officials from the Public Health Service, and that sort of thing. So it can assemble people very quickly. If the disaster is a very big one, and all the ones I'm going to show some slides on a little bit later, were big ones, they dispatch a management team to the site. And that's called the Disaster Assistance Response Team. It's, called, it's a DART team. And that puts the managers right in the ground at the site, and that's where decisions are made about what organizations to fund uh, what kind of commodities are needed, what kind of experts are needed. They coordinate with the local government and other governments and United Nations agencies. So you can do any one of all of those things or all of them at uh, one time. Just as an example of how this actually works with a disaster, if you remember a few years ago, in 2004 on December 26, there was a tsunami. There was an earthquake first and then a tsunami in the Indian Ocean. And when <laughs> quite often we hear about things lov- uh, like that before the, the country where the disaster occurs hears about it. We, when the earthquake occurred off the coast of, of Sumatra and uh, on uh, December 26th, we got a phone call from Golden, Colorado which monitors all earthquakes around the world and said a very big earthquake has happened just off the coast of, Ingen- uh, of uh, Indonesia and there's going to be a lot of deaths. I called the ambassador, uh, our ambassador in Jakarta, he called the government and told them what was, what was going on, they were not aware of it yet. Uh, we called uh, Sri Lanka and Thailand and some other countries with the same information. About ten minutes later we got a call from the tsunami monitoring center in Hawaii and said there's going to be a very big tsunami associated with this earthquake so the, uh, it's going to be a devastating situation. So we made the phone calls again and informed uh, the government of what we knew. And knowing it was going to be bad, within a couple of hours we chartered aircraft to fly supplies out of Pisa, Italy and out of uh, Dubai. Uh, one Pisa, Italy went to Sri Lanka and the stuff from Dubai went to Indonesia. <coughs> so we had planes in the air in four or five hours after we heard about the earthquake. We sent our experts from, from Thailand and Nepal to those various countries and we had some very good folks who specialize in, in earthquakes in Costa Rica. So we dispatched those guys out there. We activated our 24-hour operations center in Washington. It's located in the Ronald Reagan building. And so they were up and running before our people arrived on the ground. Um, And then because the military was going to be involved in this, we set up coordination cells in the Pentagon uh, in Washington and Hawaii at the Pacific Command in Udupao, Thailand, which was a forward base that the military would use to respond to to the earthquake. So all of this was put in place in about 24 hours. Uh, We were far ahead of any other country and uh, move very quickly. Now, when we deal with a different kind of disaster, like one is going on in Darfur right now, it's, uh, and that's a civil conflict disaster, the, the, the way we get into providing assistance is a little slower and a little bit different. When the fighting started in Darfur in 2003, uh, we had a hard time figuring out what was going on in Darfur. The government did not want anybody seeing what was going on because they were part of it. Uh, so it took us four or five months to figure out just how serious the situation was in Darfur. And we were in <coughs> excuse me, daily contact with our embassy, and at some point with the ambassador there and uh, the people back in Washington, we made a de- determination on what day the ambassador would declare a disaster and then we'd be begin providing assistance. But we watched that situation for several months before we knew what we could do and before the political situation was conducive to providing assistance, and that meant some long discussions with the Sudanese government. But that, so we've started providing assistance in Darfur in late 2003. Now we fund about 25 NGOs. About a, about a dozen U.N. agencies at about three to four hundred million dollars a year. We provide most of the food that's going into Darfur and we're still there with big disaster assistance response teams. They've been there for four years now. So the response to a natural disaster moves much faster to the Civil War type disasters. It's a little more measured as you figure out the political situation and the security situation uh before you send people into those kinds of disasters. <coughs> Excuse me. How does this all fit into the U.S. foreign policy structure of the United States government? One of the overarching foreign policy objectives of the United States government is to provide humanitarian assistance to people who need it around the world, regardless of the relationship of their government to the United States government. On any given day, there's about 40 million people who are displaced from their homes Uh, due to civil conflict and natural disasters. There's 820 million people on any given day who need food aid. And there's another 37 million people who are living in their homes but have no access to food, health care, potable water, or any of those sorts of things because of conflict going on around them. That's the universe the humanitarian community is working with. It moves situations settle in one country and flare up in another country, but the order of magnitude is what's pretty much constant around the world. Excuse me. And that's what the humanitarian side of the U.S. government is focused on. Excuse me a minute here. Because humanitarian assistance is a priority for the Uh, United States government and a priority for the White House. When we decide to respond to a major disaster, the White House engages immediately and the interagency process is uh, coordination process is activated uh, within a matter of hours. So there are three levels of coordination that go on in Washington when a major disaster response is undertaken. The first is by the National Security Council and they convene a group of all the Uh, U.S. government agencies that will be involved in responding to the emergency. The main responders, the U.S. Agency for International Development, so we're always present. The State Department is present, the Pentagon, both the civilians, the Office of Secretary of Defense and a representative of the Joint Staff and the Uniformed Service is there. The intelligence agencies are present. (coughs) The Treasury Department and, of course, the Office of Management and Budget that controls the money, and then the Office of the Vice President is always present and then other agencies of the U.S. government as as required. They meet on a daily basis. Sometimes uh, when the disaster slows down, they'll meet two or three times a week. After each meeting, the president is briefed on, on what was decided there. At the same time, the U.S. Agency for International Development convenes a task force and that coordinates with other countries It sets the strategy for providing assistance It makes sure the humanitarian folks are in sync with the development folks who may be doing work in that same country. And most importantly, this group coordinates with the ethnic groups in the United States who are native to the country. If there's an earthquake in Pakistan, we assemble the Pakistani Americans and tell them what we're doing so that they know what the United States is doing in the country where their relatives are. And then at the operational level, this is the third coordination uh, uh, mechanism is the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance convenes or or, uh, activates its operations center in the Ronald Reagan building and this is the group that has hourly almost minute minute minute-by-minute contact with the disaster teams that are on the ground at the disaster site to make sure they have the right kind of equipment, they have enough money to inform them when commodities will be arriving that they're going to distribute, and if it's a war zone, um, that's the group that will arrange the evacuation of people if they have to get out of harm's way, way in a hurry. So there's three levels of coordination that go on in Washington continuously while we're responding to a disaster, and then the operational group is the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance that's on the ground as well. Uh, so that's, that's how the mechanism is set up. If the military is involved, there's a whole set of civil military uh, coordination meetings that are set up from Washington down to the site where the disaster occurs. So it's a, it's a very elaborate system to make sure that everybody knows what everybody else is doing in the government. The U.S. government plays a leadership role in the international community in responding to disasters as well, as well and it does it in three ways. We provide, uh, in any given year, somewhere between two and a half and three and a half billion dollars a year for humanitarian assistance. About 40% of that is food aid. No other country provides that level of assistance. Um, Most of the funding, again, goes to to NGOs like CRWRC and other ones, so it extends the reach of the U.S. government much, much further than you would think initially. Another way that the US plays a very big role in responding to disasters is there is a a group of about 18 countries around the world that um, are the main responders to disasters in the world and the main funders of the United Nations and NGOs. It's basically Europe, the US and Canada, Japan, New Zealand and Australia. We as the United States government are Probably the leading nation in in this group of of countries in terms of advising the United Nations and dealing with each other and how to develop better procedures and better ways to provide humanitarian assistance. The third way that the U.S. plays a very strong leadership role in the international community is by its reach. We have embassies, consulates, USAID missions in virtually every country in the world. If a disaster happens, we probably have an embassy there and we can get people to the scene right away. We have an elaborate network of early warning systems for volcanoes, for cyclones and hurricanes, uh, for earthquakes and for tsunamis that uh, we know... Uh, what's going on within minutes of when it happens. We also have a famine early warning system, so we monitor crop production and droughts around the world. So we'll see famines coming long before they actually hit and we can work out how to deal with that with the local governments. (coughs) And we have the ability to project out, which most countries don't do. We can send a disaster assistance response team of 10 people to 100 people to 200 people out for a couple of weeks or in the case of Darfur for four years or more. Uh, Most countries in the world can't do that so one of our close partners when we provide humanitarian assistance like the Netherlands they do not have the same size foreign ministry and development programs that we do so when we send our people out and our reports come back in and we make decisions on how the uh, assistance is going to be made we give those reports. The Dutch and our colleagues in Europe and for countries that don't have the ability to send all that kind of staff out are what we write in our reports and the recommendations we make are quite often taken by the Dutch and the the Danish and the Belgians and some of the other countries that just don't have as big of a a government program to respond to disasters so we play a very big role within the international community beyond just the 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 amount of money uh, that the United States provides and now what I would like to do is switch and uh, ah, it works um, show a couple of si- slides uh, that relate to a number of disasters. The first one I would like to talk a little bit about occurred in December 7 in 1988. It was an earthquake in Armenia. It was 7.2 on the Richter scale. It, uh, the earthquake lasted for about 45 seconds. Uh, it devastated a number of towns around Spitak, Linen and, and a few other areas. The timing of the earthquake is very important. It, it occurred at 11.41 in the morning, which meant all the kids were still in school and all the, the people were working in factories and businesses. If the earthquake would have occurred 20 or 25 minutes later, it would have been lunchtime. People would, a lot more people would have been outside of uh, some um, pretty uh, earthquake Um, dangerous structures and a lot fewer people would die, would have died. Fifty thousand people were killed in this earthquake. We went out with a team of about fifty people from the Fairfax County Fire Department, the Miami-Dade Fire Department and a bunch of doctors who specialized in the kinds of injuries that you would get in uh, an earthquake of this nature. This is a school or a part of a school um, where there was a disproportionately high number of children One of the characteristics you find in an earthquake is people don't want to leave their homes or their sites. Perhaps the remains of loved ones are still under the rubble, but your belongings and things that are important to you, it's very hard to get people to move to camps and away from the dangerous, uh, unstable buildings. Just a few pictures of what the earthquake looked like. Um, There were so many dead and the bodies were being found all the time that coffins were placed on every corner and people would place bodies in the coffin. They'd leave the cover off for about a day or so and if no one could identify the body they'd be taken away. When, uh, when we were there we found about four people alive uh, during the course of the two weeks we were there. It takes about seven or eight hours to extract somebody once you once the, the, the search dogs identify a, a person alive in the rubble you bring in heavy equipment to very carefully separate the rubble so it doesn't collapse on the person who was alive uh, in the rubble, so it's a very elaborate process that takes a long time to pull people out. What they were working on here was a young woman that she did lose a leg, but uh, she was about 10 years old. She did survive, uh, however. This is just an interesting photo. Everybody's, as you can see, is along this building. That's where the lists of the dead were put each morning. As they began to identify people, they have about seven o'clock in the morning. There would be a new list of people, so uh, everybody came by to find out if family members uh, were were on the list. We actually stayed in the second floor above that, and uh, were trying to work with the mayor of Linanakan to, to 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 manage the disaster. The difficulty was, the mayor lost 16 family members <coughs> in the earthquake. The guy was in shock. He really wasn't particularly helpful uh, for, for dealing with the, the earthquake. There's a, a, a fallacy when you plan for earthquakes. Every, every city that's earthquake prone has a great plan and their officials are there to run it. Actually, the pe- people who should run the earthquake plan should be about 50 miles away because nine times out of ten, the folks who are responsible for manage the earthquake and re- managing the earthquake response are killed in the earthquake. You should have people much further away. Another, if you go up a number of years to 2003, this is uh, the bomb earthquake. Um, A couple of comments about that. This was 6.6 on the Richter scale. It uh, occurred at 5.30 in the morning. Time, again, is important. And about 26,000 people were killed in this earthquake. Uh, We sent a team of about 120 people out. It was the Fairfax County Fire Department again and two surgical hospital teams from Mass General uh, in Boston. Uh, just the, sometimes when you go to disaster sites, you don't travel in the best, best of planes. This is a C-130, our last leg of the flight uh, from Kuwait into Iran. I don't know if any of you have been in the military and in the sling seats of a C-130 or a 141. They're not very pleasant. It's kind of cold. There isn't a movie. Um, <laughs> and all your supplies are, are in the middle there. Uh, this is a bit of a, some of the uh, destruction that went on in bomb. Uh, the place was pretty much leveled. Most of the houses were made out of adobe of some sort and when the earthquake hit it, it just collapsed. There was no spaces like in, in uh, Armenia where you could hope to be alive. Everything just collapsed uh, uh, straight down and killed the people who were on the lower floors which they tend to sleep on the lower floors because they're cooler. Uh, here, and uh, the earthquake happened at 5.30 in the morning, so it killed a lot of people that were still at home. Just some various sites, the Fairfax County Fire Department people. We try to get people to go to camps. We set up tent camps, but again, they don't want to leave their belongings, and they don't want to... they kid like this. This young man here, who we talked to, he his entire family was somewhere in that rubble, and he was looking for things that uh, would remind him, I guess, of his parents and his brothers and sisters. And we, the, the kid, was uh, just wouldn't leave that area uh, for day for several days. We were there for about three weeks. Most of the time, we we'd always find him around here. That's where the ten, That's where the rescue team stayed. There were three tents. And we flew in two fire vehicles from Fairfax County, Virginia, which we left. It was easier to give them to the local fire department than fly them back, which was kind of expensive. Uh, So it was kind of cramped. It was tents with sleeping bags and cots, sort of one end to the other. We slept in shifts. We didn't have enough tents, and we had too many people. So that's just a (coughs) a little bit of what it's like uh, when you send the team out there the Indian Ocean earthquake which occurred exactly one year after the bomb earthquake. This was on December 26, uh, 2004. A uh, couple of comments about an earthquake and tsunami. Um, the earthquake happened. It was, it was 9.3 on the Richter scale, one of the most powerful earthquakes ever recorded. Most earthquakes are over, <clears throat> excuse me, in less than a minute. This earthquake went on for ten minutes. Um, when it happened, it raised the floor of the ocean where the earthquake happened by several meters. That displaced volumes of water and that's what started this tsunami. (coughs) Tsunamis in, in deep water, a tsunami will move anywhere from 300 to 600 miles an hour. The wave is about two feet high, so you don't notice it so much. But when it gets to shallow water, it slows to about five miles an hour and the wave can go up to 100 feet high. And that's what happened uh, in this, uh, the earthquake and the tsunami that followed. So by, <coughs> excuse me, by the time we knew that a tsunami had happened, it had already hit this place, uh, Banda Aceh, which is the northern tip of Sumatra in, in Jakarta. The, uh, just, just, it took 15 minutes from where the tsunami began to hit this place. It took 90 minutes to hit Sri Lanka. It took seven hours to hit Somalia in Africa and kill several hundred people. And 8,500 miles away in South Africa, it hit 16 hours later and killed people there too. A rather powerful tsunami. This is Banda Achi the day before the tsunami. This is Banda Achi the day after. This is what it looks like on the ground. At the time the the earthquake happened, the Abraham Lincoln and the rest of its battle group was uh, passing through the region uh, on its way to Iraq to take up its post off the coast of Iraq. So (laughs) for three weeks we had the helicopters of this uh, battle group which moved the assessment teams in and out and flew supplies in and out and uh, evacuated the wounded and it's a, that's about the amount of time you really want to use the U.S. military you, for about three weeks and that gives the civilians time to charter aircraft and helicopters because it's much cheaper to use commercial helicopters than to use the, the U.S. military. They don't come for free. Uh, uh, you have to pay for them. So AID is, is stuck with a bill quite often and they're much more expensive than civilian aircraft. <coughs> The last natural disaster I'd like to, oh, and this is Sri Lanka, just the tsunami threw a boat up into the trees on one of the islands. The next earthquake I'd like to talk a little bit, or next natural disaster I'd like to talk just a little bit about is the Pakistan earthquake that occurred in uh, 2005, October 8, actually. This one was 7.7 on the Richter scale, it was a powerful one. It occurred for only about 30 seconds. 73,000 people were killed, about 4 million people were left homeless. Uh, It occurred in the northern part of Pakistan, which is very mountainous with very narrow canyons. So uh, there were villages all over the place that have never been seen again. Landslides occurred on the sides of the canyons and just entire villages disappeared that uh, no one has seen since, any of the houses (coughs) or any of the people who lived there. This is uh, Muzaffarabad, which is 60 kilometers or 60 miles north of Islamabad. This was a, a hard-hit urban center. Um, the, the, the stress, as you can see from the gentleman here, that people are put under as they try to find ways to cope with what they've lost and, and where they're going to go next is rather uh, dramatic. This is a little bit closer look at what the, the earthquake rubble looks like we tried again to get people to move away from the unstable structures and move into camps. It's very hard to get people to do that. Uh, we tried in all sorts of ways to move supplies out to the rural areas to get into the canyons and into the areas where most of the people were. We used the, they're known as jingle trucks in Pakistan. The, the, the local drivers decorate their trucks rather dramatically. And so the stuff was being flown in and then loaded on these trucks and driven up in the interior. Again, the U.S. military became very helpful. Uh, Their heavy lift helicopters came from Afghanistan for three weeks and when uh, the roads were blocked it was the helicopters who would fly up into the canyons so that we could get the relief supplies closer to the people. Uh, The canyons, if you're in that part of Pakistan, in fact are dramatically narrow. So it's very hard to even get helicopters up those canyons that will go for miles but they're very narrow. The winds are treacherous so these helicopters could not fly a good part of the time in the uh, early days after, after the earthquake. So quite often in the, mil- <coughs> excuse me, in the middle of the canyon, we'd set up a, a depot of blankets, plastic sheeting, water jugs, and the people would have to come out and get their own. So this gentleman walked out to, to get some plastic sheeting, which he's carrying, some blankets, which he's carrying, and some water containers so he can collect water. He's going back to his village as with the other earthquakes, they did not want to leave their village where loved ones were lost, where their livestock are, where their, their agricultural uh, area is. They don't want to leave that. We could not get them out of the, uh, the canyons, but their houses had been destroyed. The earthquake happened <coughs> excuse me, on October 8, snow started October 13, and it got very cold in these canyons. Again, timing was important the earthquake. In Pakistan occurred at 8.50 in the morning on Saturday, which is a school day in Pakistan. So an unusually high number of children, again, were killed uh, because they were in schools that were not structurally sound. So those are just a little cross-section of natural disasters that have occurred uh, in the past few years. Now I'd like to switch to man-made disasters. What I'm talking about here is primarily civil war and uh, these things are much more complicated, they're much more expensive, uh, they go on for a much longer time, sometimes families are dispa- displaced for a decade or more, and they're very dangerous for humanitarian workers because you're, you're working in an active uh, conflict zone. Perhaps the worst kind of disaster you can deal with is genocide. In, <coughs> in, 1990, in 1994, 800,000 Tutsis were killed in a hundred days uh, by the uh, Hutu dominated government and rebel groups in Rwanda. Um, so, And a lot of people were dispersed to other countries and uh, displaced within the country. so providing water, sanitation and health care was a very difficult thing to do in the midst of a genocide going on and, and in the midst or the aftermath of that there was great Uh, distrust and fear by the population, so they were very hard to find and very hard to assist. This is what the aftermath looks like. We never thought our food bags uh, that we provide food to people in would be used to to hold and and transport human remains. A lot of people think, uh, when they think of genocide, they think of Rwanda and they think of Africa. Uh, I think it's important to keep in mind that this occurs everywhere in the world. It's not unique to Africa by any stretch. At the same time, the genocide was going on in Darfur in uh, Rwanda. You remember there was a war going on in the Balkans. This is a town in central Bosnia. If you look at the square, the entire area has been destroyed. If you look at the lower part of the corner across the wall, there's a a house that's perfectly intact. And if you look at the top part of the screen, there's, across the street, the houses have not been damaged. Those are all Serb houses. The ones in the central block are Muslim houses. This is Kosovo in 1999. That's not a natural disaster. That's uh, more—it's artillery and bombs and mortars. So it's just sort of a reminder that the, the kinds of things that we hear so much about Africa happening in Africa right now are happen all over the world and can happen in any population that have lived together for years and years and years. So just, just something to, to think about. A current disaster underway right now is Darfur. <laughs> when we heard about it in 2003, we couldn't get in there right away and uh, but we heard that the government of Sudan and their proxies, the Janjaweed, were destroying property, uh, destroying villages and people had to, had to flee and what they would do is burn the villages to the ground. If there were any livestock, they'd kill it and people stored their food underground for the hungry seasons, they would find that and destroy it. So there was no reason to come back to these villages. So this is a satellite photo taken in 2000 late 2003, early 2004, the village has been uh, wiped out. The, the darker circles you see, those were tukuls; those were houses. That's what it looks like when you walk through one of those villages. So the people would escape. Uh, they'd flee the fighters who would come in. If they didn't, the women were raped and the men were killed. So they would escape as quickly as possible to camps that looked a lot like this. Sometimes they had to leave in a hurry. There were no camps. They would find a bunch of trees to live under for a week or two until the international community could come by and help them set up their, their camps and their, their uh, houses. This is in one of the more established camps. This is a line of women and their children waiting to, to visit a health clinic. Uh, there was a drought going on at the same time so the livestock that they could not care for and the water holes that the Sudanese government would not let their livestock get to uh, had the desired effect. All their livestock died. This is a refugee camp just across the border in eastern Chad. This is a much more of established house. This this village or this refugee camp uh, was put together in 2004, so I, well, I was there in April of last year. So this house has been around for two, three years. So it's a little more uh, looks more like a shelter than the earlier ones. These people are coming from there. They were they had just been evacuated or just escaped from the the bad guys who were shooting them up. Uh, if you can see, you can't really see, but in the trees, they that's where they were living. They haven't had time to establish a camp yet and they're walking across this little opening to collect their month's ration of food which is usually too much for a person to carry so you gotta use a donkey to take take it back to the woods uh, where they were living. Sometimes it gets fairly dangerous in these areas with the militias and the Sudanese government so when you can't get there by road we would airdrop food in. That's a World Food Program plane dropping sorghum, and other commodities to an isolated village. One of the other continuing civil conflict disasters uh, is Somalia. The the government disappeared basically in 1991, and there's been conflict almost continually since. The current fighting has taken place when when an Islamic government took control of Somalia in the early uh, months of 2006, the traditional warlords attacked the Ethiopian government was uncomfortable with the Islamic government in Somalia so it came to the aid of the traditional warlords and they've been fighting in in uh, Somalia uh, ever since. The war, the fighting with the Ethiopians and others has, has continued through 2007. Hundreds of thousands of people are displaced because of this but because of the insecurity we are unable to get in there on any regular basis and provide assistance. This one slide sort of shows what's going on in there. This woman and child had to leave a city. They moved out to a displaced persons camp. A few days later, you can see her in her tent, or her tuchel that's a little bit more covered, but not much. And about two weeks later, you can see her. uh, They fixed up her her hut a little bit, but she uh, will live there probably for the next 10 years or so. Uh, You don't see many men. They're either fighters or they're dead. So they're not around most of these camps. But the the tragedy goes on in Somalia. Now I'd like to conclude with just a couple of comments about a place that's uh, become more important to me in the past couple of months. This is where I live and work, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Fighting has been going on there since in the two eastern provinces since 1996. There are about four million people who require assistance. There's a million and a half displaced people. Since 1996 about four million people have died. Um, Approximately 500 to thousand people die every week in the Eastern Congo. This is by far the worst humanitarian disaster in the world today. It doesn't get a whole lot of attention not like Darfur or other places. This is a tremendously difficult uh, situation. There are displaced camps all over the place. This is very near a town called Goma, which is a provincial capital. Uh, It's just across the border from Rwanda. This camp was set up in 2000. uh, It's not any better now. I was there a couple of days or a week or so ago. It's gotten much bigger. This is what camps begin to look like in the Eastern Congo. This, This hut was just set up Uh, a few days before. It's made out of bamboo. They're putting mud along it to waterproof it and insulate it a little bit more. They'll use anything they can find to cover because it rains every day there and Goma is about three or four thousand feet so it also gets very cold there at night. Some more pictures of the camps. There's about six camps around Goma like this. I had to put a slide in here that shows I actually do go to these sort of places. This is the camp that I had just shown. This is a supplementary feeding center. Each of these kids get one uh, one additional meal a day. Uh, They have to get it and eat it here to make sure that they actually do get it. Adjoining this room, this is a therapeutic center. These kids have to be fed individually about six or seven times a day. These kids are severely malnourished. Uh, Most of these kids probably are not living now. Um, 400,000 people were displaced in that province in the past year. They had escaped the fighting that was going on between rebel groups and between rebel groups and the government. And when they leave, they have to leave in a hurry. This group came into Goma when I was there a week or ten days ago. They have moved three times to escape the fighting. And so they left their original home and they moved twice and they've walked for two days to get to Goma. This is all they have as, as they move into the camps that we were just looking at. Uh, they've lost absolutely everything. It's just what they can carry on their head and walk with. So when you hear about uh, hundreds of thousands of people being displaced by fighting, this is what it looks like. They're walking down a path as far as they can go with everything that they have that they can possibly carry with them. And uh, with that, just a couple of, of, of final comments. That's just a, a little overview of natural disasters and civil conflict disasters that the United States government responds to when the US NGOs uh, actually do the real work on the ground. Um, I think we can very, be very proud of, of our government for, for what they do and particularly of the American NGOs for what they do. They're the ones who are really on the ground providing the assistance and in harm's way. Again it's like CWRC and other organizations. They're the ones who do the hard, hard work and the heavy lifting. Uh, those of us in, in AID and the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance just fund them we coordinate with government and we sort of do the easy stuff it's the the NGOs who do the hard work uh... on the ground uh... thank you very much
1: thank you very much to ambassador Garling. we have about ten minutes for questions uh... there are microphones at the heads of these aisles and in the uh balcony if you have a question uh please go to the microphone and uh make your question uh, succinct if you would and we'll have him uh try to answer it one of the reasons for the microphones is that the lecture is being distributed to 12 other sites around the United States and uh, we need to have those people hear the questions as well go ahead
3: ambassador thank you for being here um, I have a question, a broader question and a smaller question. Smaller question is, didn't know if you were going to comment at all about the peace talks that were supposed to be signed today in Goma. <laughs> so, And then, I like that laugh, so you may want to ignore that question. Oh, the, no,
2: I, I absolutely not.
3: <laughs> well, and the, the broader question is this. Um, I realize that we have snow, but there aren't a lot of folks there, and I guess it's more of a... Theological, ethical, maybe what's wrong with us question, which probably is better directed to God than to you. Um, But, And I realize that apparently you're not as sexy as George Clooney or Don Cheadle or Bono. What? (laughs) But in the midst of what's happened in Kenya, one of our schools here has an intentional partnership with Kenya. And so I've Mm. been talking to Kenyans every day, and talking to people in the State Department and talking to Congress people and talking to people in South Africa. And the church has remained largely silent, which I do not understand. I have called my friends in the press who are anchor people in New York and Atlanta, and I have been told that Kenya doesn't sell.
2: Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Uh, well, uh, let me comment on your, the second part of the question uh, first, and I, it, it is a very serious situation in Kenya and I
3: I guess my broader question and my apologies for the emotion but I guess what I'm wondering is for those of us uh, people of faith what does it take for this to matter as much as what Brittany is wearing today so that's Hmm. number one number two Goma thank you
2: yeah Uh, good point Um, I share your frustration with um, how you get attention for uh, humanitarian crises. The big one, of course, like I said, is in the Congo and we can't get people to pay attention to that. It's, I don't like to compare disaster settings. That's really unfair to the people who are suffering, but the biggest one in the world today is the Congo and we have not been able to get people's attention, just like in Kenya. So I'm not sure how you do it. I hope to meet with a number of members of Congress uh, in the next few days and help uh, move that along just an aside because I don't really know the details uh, of of what's going on in Nairobi uh, and, and in Kenya right now, but the impact not only on Kenya, it's rather dramatic for the Democratic Republic of Congo and for Uganda and Rwanda. Fuel prices have jumped up by 30 or 40 percent in the eastern Congo. Food prices have doubled for people who can't afford it anyway. Uh, most of the food and the uh, fuel comes through the port of Mombasa in Kenya and in transits Kenya and as long as the instability is going on there, it's having a dramatic economic impact on on the country I work in and in Rwanda and Burundi and uh, Uganda as well. So it's the impact and that's why I'm a little puzzled as you are why why more more attention is not being paid it's not just the country of Kenya, it's having a, a, a great effect on Central Africa and the Great Lakes countries in the, the middle of Africa. To switch to your other question about the peace conference, it is the one thing I've been working on for two months in the Congo uh, with, with the government and with uh, the, the UN peacekeepers and uh, the last report I had a couple of hours ago from talking to the Embassy is that by the time we're talking here now. Hopefully a peace agreement has been signed between President Kabila and General Nkunda, uh, the uh, Tutsi rebel general who was operating out of uh, northern Kivu. So the agreement was supposed to be signed yesterday. There were some last minute glitches. I think it was probably signed a couple of hours ago there and they're seven hours ahead of us there. Um, but I haven't had a chance in the past two or three hours to talk to the embassy to find out for sure. I've I've seen the draft of the statement that that Secretary Rice is going to make if uh, the actual signing had occurred, and I've seen some draft uh, newspaper articles from Reuters, New York Times, announcing the peace agreement, but I have not heard from my embassy that it has actually been signed yet. It will be the beginning, I think, of peace in the East if it is actually signed. But I've, I've been around long enough to wait until I see the signatures on the paper before um, talking too much about it.
1: Okay, we have some other questions here, but I'll take one question from a remote site in Troy, Michigan. The questioner asks, why is your office able to respond so quickly while FEMA was so slow and disorganized in responding as in Katrina?
2: Well, I think that's one I probably won't say a whole lot about. Um, (laughs) uh, Responding to disasters, all I will say though, is responding to disasters in the United States is a much more difficult and a harder process to do than than dealing it with other countries of the world. And I frankly would not want to be charged with doing that sort of thing in the United States. the demands are much higher, the the speed of communication is much greater and it's just a much harder thing to do. Um, FEMA had its problems. Uh, We actually provided about 60 people to work with FEMA um, and coordinate the uh, humanitarian assistance and and supplies and this sort of thing coming in from overseas. So we were actually very engaged uh, in what was going on and we activated our operations center and coordinated the arrival of all. Uh, international commodities and uh, search and rescue and specialty teams that came in from uh, 20 or 30 countries around the world. But it was a very difficult thing to deal with and uh, I don't know what to say. We were all a little amazed.
0: You've spoken about um, humanitarian assistance Um, That can be done in a very apolitical way. People are hurting. We can step in. We can help. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm wondering if you could comment for a couple moments about development assistance and whether politics gets into that too much. I'm thinking in particular of of the Congo right now and of uh, assistance there. Um, can the U.S. give assistance and not have, not have strings attached or implicit with it?
2: Well, it's hard to do. I, I think you have to separate the humanitarian assistance which, which the United States government can do uh, in a, a relatively apolitical way. Um, the development assistance account is very different and that's tied much more directly to foreign policy activities in a given country and as our relations with a country ebbs and flows, so does the development account uh, in that particular country. So the development assistance count is a very important uh, element of our bilateral relationship with a given country. The humanitarian element is is different and it comes in sometimes for extended periods of time, but it comes in in a very uh, different sort of way, it does not have strings attached, uh, you know, when you're into the development program, you're tied into the Ministry of Health and you're tied into the Ministry of Agriculture. You're working with the IMF and the World Bank. You're discussing large loans and enormous amounts of money. And it's virtually impossible to do that without uh, that, has got to be, I think, quite rightly linked into the foreign policy objectives of the United States government in that country and by its very nature it's much more political so it's it's very hard to do the development side of the equation without getting very involved in politics it's much easier to work on the humanitarian side uh where that is much less of a factor that's not a clear answer but my question is kind of a follow up on my colleague's question want to go um, I hear very little discussion, and I wonder why not, of whether we should make it as a goal in both the humanitarian and the development efforts in the United States to work for a
0: less unilateral, more multilateral, more collaborative approach. Uh, certainly you
2: you'd you have issues of, of timeliness and, and immediate response, but wouldn't we gain a great deal in both the immediate humanitarian and long-term development aid? if our efforts were seen clearly to be decoupled from American foreign policy and military policy and clearly aligned with a coalition of nations, whether through the U.N. or through other bodies? Is that something that is being discussed? I simply haven't heard it discussed. Oh, it is discussed all the time. And and uh, I, th- I th- well first of all let me comment on a couple of things. I think the, on the humanitarian side of things, it's not a bilateral or a multilateral approach. You look at the United States Agency for International Development and the and the humanitarian account. That is a bilateral approach to providing humanitarian assistance. If you walk across the street to the State Department, there is a large account that is humanitarian assistance as well and virtually all of that runs through the United Nations. So we have in fact a very elaborate bilateral and multilateral approach on the humanitarian side. It's less so uh, again on the development side uh, there it is much more of a bilateral activity and I think it's uh, I, you know we, we talk a lot about the politics of development and all of that and I just don't see any way of of separating that uh, of any, uh, any distance away from from the politics of a given country uh, and that relationship with the United States. But on the humanitarian side, it can be done, and it is both a multilateral and a bilateral approach to humanitarian assistance. Well, says that his military movement exists to protect the Congolese Tutsi from genocide. There yep. are many who doubt his motivations or that that's his pure intent. How does the American government? view in Kunda, and where would they like to see him go now? We'd like to see him go to The Hague. <laughs> but I'm not sure that's what he has in mind. Um, yeah, his, his justification for existence is he's a Tutsi. He's protecting the Tutsi population from the FDLR or the inter and XFAR who have left Rwanda and moved across the border into the Congo. And that is a... Um, concern, but I don't think it's a legitimate one. Uh, Mr. Nkunda is becoming very wealthy with diamonds and other sorts of things in the territory he controls. But that's his justification for existence, and hopefully this is the first step. We'll deal with him, and then the government of the Congo will deal with the FDLR as well, which is an issue that has to be resolved sooner or later. The international community and the various countries in the region have avoided that issue since 1994, and I think they've run out of out of time to, to avoid it any further. I think also there is a, a mindset in, in, the, in, in Rwanda, Burundi, particularly Rwanda and the Congo, that it's time to end this. What has happened in the past decade is the Rwandans have done remarkably well in, in, in developing their economy if the instability continues on their border with the Congo, it's going to hurt their economic development. That was not the situation in 94, 95, 96, but it is in 2006 and 2007 and 2008. So I think it is now in the interest of all the countries uh, in the region, to settle this thing peacefully and get on with the economic development that all the countries there would would much profit from. So I think that the the, the environment has changed a little bit, and it may be more conducive to finally resolving these issues.
3: One last question from Congo. And, uh,
0: I don't know if there are uh, companies that make weapons in Africa. Uh, maybe. A only in South Africa, but in most of Africa, people don't make weapons there. And rebels seem to have good weapons they use against the population. And then after that, uh, Western countries come with help when Mm -hmm. people are already killed. So my question is, does the West know the people who sell those weapons to the rebels to create problems so that after that you come to help us. If you know, it's not better to prevent them from selling those weapons instead of coming after they kill people already.
2: Yep. Uh, Good point. Uh, But um, over the years, I've been involved in the humanitarian business. I got to know John Garang very well uh, in southern Sudan. And he said his best source of weapons was the Sudanese military who would run very quickly when his his soldiers showed up. They would, every time a new shipment of weapons came in to Khartoum, uh, he was a very happy man because he knew he would have them uh, in a matter of months. Once he he, uh, engaged the Sudanese and they would run and they'd grab all those weapons. That largely is what's happening in the Congo as well, is that... uh, the best source for General Nkunda to get weapons is from this uh, Congolese military when they when they uh, desert and they just leave their weapons so he picks up quite a few that way also he has uh, been able to to amass quite a quite a bit of money through the charging of taxes in North Kivu and uh, through his control of uh, copper mines, uh, primarily diamond mines, so he's able to buy weapons from Eastern Europe and that sort of thing. The other country that does produce weapons is Sudan, and they'll sell to just about anybody. But your point is well taken. It'd be nice to get to this before uh, the weapons get there and people get shot with them.
1: Please join me in thanking
2: Ambassador <laughs> Garbling?
0: Thank
1: again we'll thank the Christian Forum World Relief Committee for sponsoring and the ambassador will be able to be met briefly in the west lobby uh, if you have a comment or question thank you again